You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So, I was, I don't know, a million years ago, basically. I used to be in a band, and uh, we signed a two-album record deal, and then uh, we put out our first album in the spring of 1995, and then that we spent most of that summer uh, on tour traveling this great land of ours. And um, space was limited, so everyone was allowed one duffel bag. That's it. Pack your clothes for an entire summer in one duffel bag, because most of the space was taken up with, you know, guitars, drums, amps, and then the t-shirts and hoodies and hats and all that stuff that we were selling while we were on tour. So I get my clothes ready for the tour, and then I, I throw a bottle of cologne in the bag too, because I'm thinking just because I'm going to be living out of a van for the next two and a half months, I don't have to smell like an animal at every city that I show up in. Now, this is the mid-90s, all right? It's 1995, so this is the summer that the movie Batman Forever came out, which is the one that starred Val Kilmer as Batman. That's a terrible movie, by the way. Uh, I love Val Kilmer and I love Batman, but not together. And, uh, <coughs> sorry, and then, uh, but thankfully that's the summer that Braveheart was released, so it, it balanced things out. Uh, the top three songs on the Billboard Hot 100 that summer were Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. I wish I could pull off that haircut. Um, Kiss from a Rose by Seal and Waterfall by TLC. Don't even think about chasing them. <laughs> by the way, the lyrics of that song make no sense. Um, and so anyway, but you get the idea of what's happening. So I threw my Jenko jeans into, anybody who remembers, who remembers Jenko jeans? Anybody? Okay, there's only people on this side remember Jenko jeans. There's a couple people over here remember Jenko. All right, thank, all right I'll include you in our group. Back there, I include you in our group too. All right, Chris, you're part of our group too. All right, so, um, but I threw my Django jeans in my cologne. Now, and this is, this is the cologne I threw in there. Okay. Let's talk about this. There has never been a cologne that has taken the world by storm the way Drakkar took the late 80s, early 90s. And, um, and so, anyway, where are my Drakkar people at, by the way? Okay, I'm not saying you're a current Drakkar person, but you were a Drakkar, although if you are a current one, I respect it. Maybe you still wear a members-only jacket. You're the last member. So, uh, <clears throat> but if you are, God bless you. And uh, so, <clears throat> but 1995 was Drakkar's prime, and I was ready to brighten every room I walked into. The problem is, now let me, there is a design flaw in the Drakkar bottle. Now, if you see, this is the lid to the Drakkar bottle. Now, it's a regular bottle, that, that comes up. So this is a bottle of water. So the, it's like this, but then the cap comes over because it has this little plug that plugs the, the bottle and then it just kind of has like that nice outer thing. But I dropped it once. And so I broke the little thing that plugs the cologne. But it's okay because when I went to throw it in the bag, I put a little piece of tape on there to keep it fastened. Unfortunately, when I threw my bag in the van, the cap became dislodged, and the Drakkar started pouring out, so much so we had not even left Palm Beach County, and guy, the guys were like, what stinks in this van? Now, here's the thing, and I'm like, I don't smell anything, because 
I can't, I can smell, I can hardly smell anything. My nose exists for one purpose, and that is to hold up my glasses. That's it. That is the only purpose that it serves, because it doesn't do anything else. So, now what happened is, is that the car bottle became, the, the top became dislodged and started leaking out. It leaked through all my clothes. It leaked through the bag. It started leaking into everyone else's bag. And so when everyone pulled out all their clothes, all their clothes smelled like me, and, which I thought was fantastic. And they didn't speak to me until we got to our first show in Virginia Beach and we found a laundromat. And um, now, <clears throat> I tell you all that because if you've been in conflict, you know conflict stinks. <clears throat> and conflict has this way of kind of seeping into our lives and spicing things up in negative ways. But the reality is that conflict is a part of life. Even if you're a person who doesn't like conflict and you run from conflict, if you want to be a mature believer or you just want to be a mature human, you're going to have to learn how to deal with conflict. And the story that we're going to look at, there's plenty of conflict. In fact, all of chapter 12 has a bunch of conflict. And the way I wanted to do this was to do all of chapter 12 in one message and just take it in two hours. But... Anyway, I don't, they don't let me. Apparently, you guys have other things going on in your life today, so I have to break it up into two. So we're going to take the whole conversation that happens in, in two sessions, but we're going to talk about conflict this time and next time, and that, you know, Jesus and the religious leaders have been disagreeing about certain things, but Jesus has grown in popularity so much that now there's just a lot of interest, a lot of wherever he goes, the religious leaders from that area are there to listen to him. And now they're digging in and they're finding fault with everything that he does. In fact, we're going to see Jesus heal someone and they're going to have a problem with it. We're going to see Jesus, um, he's just walking and his guys eat lunch. They're going to have a problem with that. But we're going to learn a lesson in the midst of these interactions about how to deal with conflict, how to not blow our top when conflict happens, how to not lose our testimony and ask, ask unchristian when we're confronted and that means we need to deal with conflict differently than the way the rest of the world deals with conflict because our culture deals with conflict like this. They are out to win an argument. Christians need to be wiser than that. People who follow Jesus, here's what we need to do. We need to know that the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to win the relationship. So let's start. <clears throat> We're going to start in chapter 12 of Matthew in verse 1. Here's what we read. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. So how do we engage in conflict and do it the right way? The first is this, if you're a note taker. And that is understand the goal of the conflict. Now, it can't be understated. And, I, and for us to have this conversation, we have to, I got to give you a little bit of a foundation on this. It cannot be understated how important the Sabbath was and continues to be in Jewish life. The Sabbath is at the heart 
of Judaism. The Jews, uh, well, let me just say this. Um, when the, em- the emperor Hadrian, around the year 120, dispelled the Jewish people from uh, Israel, and uh, he was so upset with them, he made it illegal for two Jews to talk in public. And we'll talk about this more when we get to chapters 24 and 25. But he even renamed um, Israel Alia Capitolina. Um, and so, <clears throat> which was to make it the capital of um, the god Jupiter. And so uh, he was so upset. And then the Jews were scattered in what's called the diaspora throughout uh, the entire known world at that time. The Jews went 19 centuries without a homeland and still were able to maintain their national identity. No people group has ever survived more than three generations without, with no homeland and are, were able to maintain their national identity. This is why when you read about certain people groups in the Old Testament, they, they're just, they're gone. Uh, because they got dispelled from their land and eventually they started intermarrying with other people and then a na- their national identity was lost. This is why you've never met a Hittite, you've never met an Ammonite, you've never met an Amalekite, you've never met an Uptite. Well, those guys, those guys are still around. You can run into those guys. But no people group survives without having a homeland more than, than three generations and uh, because they end up blending into the new culture. The Jews did not. Um, and they maintained their national identity. And in 1948, when they became a nation again, people began to flock back to, to Israel. And when, if you ask um, someone who's Jewish why that's the case, they will tell you the same thing. And it's just a phrase that is kind of ingrained in Judaism, that the Jews kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath kept the Jews. So the question is, what are the disciples of Jesus in violation of? So the, the Pharisees, these religious leaders that were probably the strictest of the, seg- the sects of Judaism, they were saying um, they're saying they're in violation of the Sabbath because they were doing something that was allowed in the law of Moses. There was a law in the Torah that any person could walk through any field and just grab some of the grapes or grab some of the grain uh, for free. In fact, um, there's a passage where we're told that God tells landowners that they can't, um, when they harvest, they can't harvest everything. They have to leave some, uh, they have to leave some grain, grapes, they have to leave some for the poor. And so then those who were, who were poor would be able to go uh, onto the, uh, their neighboring land and be able uh, to eat some of it. And once again, some of this was to give the poor the dignity of working so that they weren't just handed uh, whatever they needed. Instead, they were able to work for it um, because there's dignity in work. So, but the other thing is this, is that the, the, the poor could go onto a field and grab what they needed, but they couldn't back up a truck. They couldn't bring a big container. They couldn't bring tools to, ha- no, it was just whatever you needed, you could take. In fact, you'll see it on the screen here in Deuteronomy. He says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put it in any container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So he made this command as a provision for the poor, and it gave those who were owners an understanding that there were those with needs around them. And so if this is the case and there's a provision for that, that's what these guys are doing. Jesus and the disciples are walking through. <coughs> They're walking through the, the field. They see some grain. They're grabbing it. And then the religious leaders are saying, you're, you're, you're in violation. Well, why is that? Because this is happening on the Sabbath. And there is an oral tradition 
that said this was a sin. Now, this wasn't in the Bible, but they had created their own interpretations that they had placed at the same level as Scripture. Now, what the Pharisees were saying was that the disciples were guilty of breaking four laws on the Sabbath, that they were guilty of reaping, that is, they were plucking the grain. They were guilty of threshing, that is, that they were rolling it in their hands, and when you rolled it, um, it, t- it took the grain out of the outer shell, which is called the chaff. Then they were guilty of winnowing, because when they went and blew away the chaff and all those left was grain, that was considered winnowing, and then, of course, when it was done and they ate it, they were guilty of preparing a meal. What I love about Jesus is that instead of arguing the validity of the the oral law, Jesus goes to the Bible, which he knew they would be in agreement with, and he gives them three points for them to consider. First, he quotes from uh, 1 Samuel 21, and he says, remember when David went and got the showbread? In 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run from King Saul. He's hungry. He gets to the uh, tabernacle at the time, and the priest gives David the showbread. Now, the showbread, there were 12 loaves that were baked every week, and it was to picture the 12 tribes of Israel. Every week, it was replaced, and then the priest would eat the bread, uh, the, the older bread, and then the fresh bread was there. And so, but the priest, because David was in need, let, let David eat it. And there's a parallel to note here that's important. David was the rightful king of Israel, but someone else was ruling and and. Um, and once again, trying to kill him. Had David been king, as was supposed to happen, eating the holy bread would have been unnecessary. In the same way, Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, but the religious leaders would not receive him. If Jesus were in his rightful place, them walking through the fields on the Sabbath would have been unnecessary. Now, I have a friend who, like me, grew up Catholic, and uh, one day he forgot his lunch, and his parents weren't home to for him to call, for him to bring it to him, and, um, and nor were his friends very excited about sharing their lunch with him. So he, um, it was during Lent, and uh, so he went into the Catholic church that was connected to the school he went to, and um, because during Lent, uh, Catholics do mass every day, and so the priest left some of the host in the tabernacle. Now, if you don't know what that is, the host is when, for those of you that didn't grow up Catholic, when, uh, during the, the Catholic mass, when the priest says, um, uh, he does this prayer. He says, this, this is my body. Um, in the Latin, which in the, uh, originally in the Latin mass, it was um, hocus corpus meum. That's what he would say, which by the way is where the phrase hocus pocus comes from, is uh, from that prayer, hocus est corpus meum, which means this is my body in Latin, but then people didn't know what it means and they thought, oh, he says something like hocus pocus. So anyway, you learned something today. All right. So anyway, but then they would take the bread, they would bless it. It, it was transubstantiated, that it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus, at, which is Catholic theology. And then, uh, but they wouldn't, uh, the priest wouldn't always guess exactly how many people were going to be in church, so there would be some left over. So then they would take the bread and they would put it in this little, and forgive me, basically like a little cubby um, storage unit behind the um, altar, which was called the tabernacle. Well, anyway, my, this guy that I know, he knew that there was some bread in there. So he went into the Catholic church and he opened the tabernacle and he ate some of the bread. That's what he had for lunch that day. And after he ate it, he felt so guilty about it for years. And then he became a Christian and he started reading the Bible. And then he read this story. The first book of the Bible that he read was the Gospel of Matthew and he got to chapter 12 and he read about David eating the showbread. And it was, he was like, it's okay. David did it too, and Jesus was cool with it, and it set him free. 
And so, listen, maybe that's you. Maybe you did something weird when you were in Catholic school. And uh, be free. I think it also just, like I had too much bread yesterday. And I reread this verse. And you know what? I'm setting myself free. Because I believe that Texas toast counts in this as well. So, (coughs) now, so Jesus doubles down. And not only does he say, this is what happened with David. But then he says, and by the way, aren't the priests in the temple serving on the Sabbath? So they work on the Sabbath so everyone else can worship and enjoy rest. And then he gets to the heart of the matter. And this is the real, the real thing. He says, here's the real problem. You don't have any mercy. That's the real issue. You don't have any mercy on people who are hurting. It's not like they were trying to break the law. But people were hurting and they just didn't care about the pain that others were experiencing. And listen, whenever there's conflict, you're never gonna get anywhere. And listen, this is so true, especially in marriage, um, but it's true in any relationship. You're never gonna get anywhere if both of you are obsessed about being right. But there has to be a decision on both sides to say, we love each other, we care about each other more than we care about being right and we wanna fix this. Because if there's no mercy, there can't be any relationship. And if anyone understands mercy, it should be us. And I shared this story a few months ago, so forgive me for repeating it um, if you were here. If you weren't here, I just came up with this right now. Um, When I was nine, I uh, was living in Somerville, Massachusetts, and my mom and my stepdad and I uh, in this apartment. And so um, it was just my mom and I in the house at the time. But I was hungry. I'm, I'm, I'm nine. And so I, I go into this little pantry that we have, which is basically just like a little cabinet. And I grab a package of Doritos. And the, it wasn't full, but I mean, there was some Doritos in there. And so, but I didn't really want to eat the Doritos. I just wanted the cheesy flavor. So I started licking the Doritos and licking all the cheese off. And then I didn't know what to do with the, what was left. So I just put them back in the bag. And, and by the way, people don't realize this, but when you take all the cheese off of a Dorito you have created a different snack. It is a Tostito, (laughs) albeit a moist Tostito. But anyway, so what happens is, is that um, I I put it back in the bag and and I just, I finish them and then I just roll it back up and I put a clothespin on it because that's what chip clips were back when, you know, back in the olden times um, when we were just inventing electricity. it was, a, it was a clothespin. And so anyway, I put it back. And then I went about my business. And um, about an hour later, I heard my mom scream. And, uh, and I'm like, wow, what's that all about? And then she walked into my room and she had the Doritos in one hand uh, and a belt in the other. And that's when things got ugly. And, um, but I'll tell you what, when I regained consciousness, um, I never did that again. And <laughs> now let's fast forward 28 years. I grab a bag of Doritos out of our pantry and um, I take, I grab a chip and I take a bite and they're all wet. And my then three-year-old daughter, Mia, has decided, she got this idea to lick all the cheese off of the Doritos and put them in the bag. This is why I am convinced there are some things that just get passed through DNA. You know, I mean, there's like, you know, if there's like just like a way you turn your head and then your kids do that, like that's DNA. If there's like, oh, look, similar hairline, that's DNA or no hairline, whatever. Um, I'm telling you, that's why. And I only know two people on this planet who have done the Dos Dorito thing. 
It's me and my daughter. That's it. And that's why I'm saying this is all, this is all genetic. And so anyway, so she had licked all the Doritos off the Doritos, uh, the cheese off the Doritos and put them back in the bag. And uh, I called her over and I'm like, hey, um, let's talk about the Doritos and uh, what happened. Then she tells me, she's like, you know, I just, I just wanted the cheese from the Doritos and I didn't really want to chew the Doritos. I didn't want something crunchy. Uh-huh. And then, but I just wanted the cheese, so I just licked the Doritos. But then I thought, you know, someone else might want some later. And uh, I just thought that was the funniest thing. I, I couldn't stop laughing. And then I'm like, okay, so if you're going to do that, you got to just toss the Doritos because it's over. Like nobody's coming back to have like moist saliva Doritos. Like nobody's going to have that. And then, but you know, I just, here's the thing. I knew what it was like to be guilty of the same thing. And forgiving her, listen, brought me so much joy because it's what I wanted for myself and didn't get. This is why I say that if we are Christians, that we are sinners. We all recognize that we're sinners, but we have been shown great mercy. So if anyone understands mercy, it should be us. These religious leaders had no mercy because they did not see themselves as recipients of mercy. They saw themselves as they have earned God's favor by keeping the law down to the letter and they were missing the point completely. And this is what happens when there's conflict and we lose a relationship over the sake of being right. We end up losing all the things that matter. So what happens next? Look at verse nine. It's a similar story. <coughs> now, when they departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Now, this is these religious leaders that were out in the field, and by the way, what are they doing out in the field? Looking to see what Jesus' guys are doing so that they can find fault. Then Jesus and the disciples walk into the synagogue like, oh, that happens to be our synagogue where we're leaders. Okay, so that's that. He says, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him saying, they're asking Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Okay, so if we're talking about conflict. And the first thing that we have to do is understand the goal of conflict, which is always to win the relationship rather than winning the argument. Then the second thing that we have to do is get to the heart of the matter. Here's what I find so amazing is that the enemies of Jesus, and this I think is such a cool thing. The enemies of Jesus knew that if Jesus saw someone who was suffering, Jesus would be moved to help him. I think that's a pretty awesome thing. When people who dislike you know that you just can't help but do good for people. So they end up having a similar conversation in the synagogue that they had in the field, and that is what, can, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. And here's the thing that I realize, is that the more that I read this, the more I realize that there's two different conversations happening. The religious leaders are trying to talk to Jesus about technicalities, and Jesus is trying to talk to them about caring about hurting people. And I'm telling you, if you're married, I'm, I am, if you've been married longer than, let's just say, a weekend, you have had this conversation with your spouse where you're talking about something and she's talking about something completely different. She asked you to take out the garbage and you said you were going to take out the garbage. But now some time has gone by 
And now it's no longer about the garbage, is it? Now it's about your commitment to our relationship. The garbage is our marriage. And you will not tend to the garbage the same way you will not tend to our marriage. And then, you know what he's saying? He's saying, <clears throat> but the, the garbage doesn't go out until tomorrow, and so I have time. And now he's talking about calendars and scheduling, and she's trying to get to the core of our relationship. Apparently, you guys have never had this conversation <laughs> before. I can assure you, you have, just on a different topic. And, uh, but this is the heart of the matter. The Pharisees, these leaders, they just don't care about this hurting man. All they see is that he is a prop in their battle with Jesus about who's right. Now, back to the oral traditions. The oral tradition said you could, um, you could only give medicine on the Sabbath if it was life or death. Anything else should be handled the next day. This is how the Pharisees got to that there should be no healing on the Sabbath. So they asked Jesus if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And, and by the way, I'm telling you, if I were Jesus, and I think every, all of us should be glad that I'm not, um, I would have answered that so differently. And they're like, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I'd be like, what day do you normally heal on? What's your healing schedule, dude? Oh, none? Okay, I like my way better. So step off and step back. Let me do my thing. So that's the more modern translation. Um, <clears throat> but see, Jesus is just so kind. And he answers them in a way that they would have understood. So he presents them a philosophical question, which, by the way, if you read any ancient rabbinic literature. This is all they argue about are these philosophical questions and how the law interacts with them. And so it's the kind of question that they would have spent 50 years debating. Um, expert rabbis would have spent all this time. So he, prevent, he presents a scenario. A man has one sheep and it falls into a ditch. What do you do? Now you got to understand if a man has one sheep, this is not his pet. This is his livelihood. That means this person doesn't have a lot. He's got this one sheep. This sheep is how he's going to feed and take care of his family. And the, to let this sheep be harmed is going to harm his family to say nothing that it's harming the animal. So here's what I find interesting. Uh, by the way, the next generation of rabbis took up this argument um, and debated this topic for quite some time. And by the way, ended up agreeing with Jesus, not the Pharisees. And they said that it was lawful to break the Sabbath to alleviate suffering. <clears throat> Sorry. And so if you will, and you can Google this anytime. If you Google this phrase, my ox fell into a ditch. This is an argument that happens from about the second century on. And it's, and, and so anytime, sometimes something happens, they'll say, well, why, why did you do this on the Sabbath? And they'll say, my ox fell into a ditch. And this is code for, I had to break the Sabbath because there was an emergency. And so the, the, the rabbinic community ends up agreeing with Jesus, not the religious leaders. And the point uh, but there's a point that, that, um, that, that meets us here when we talk about dealing with conflict, and that is, are we concerned about being right? Or are we concerned about fixing the relationship? Because here's the thing that we have to understand. And this is what wisdom would teach us. Not everything is worth fighting over. Um, and I, I, t I get asked this, you know, my wife and I celebrated 25 years being married this year. And uh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's more of a feat for her than it is for me. I mean, she's beautiful and charming and smart and wise and, you know, you know me. So it's like, wow, she's a saint. She really is. And um, <clears throat> so 
Um, but not everything is worth fighting over. And, and that's one of the questions people ask me. Like, you've been married, how do you, how do you be married for 25 years? And I say, well, there's a lot of things, but here's one. Pick your battles. Because most things are just not worth arguing over. And, um, and that doesn't mean, like, if someone doesn't agree with you, just move on. You know your mission in life is not to convince everyone of everything? Sometimes you got to just leave people alone and they're crazy. Like, oh, you like this kind of crazy? Enjoy. I'm out, you know? Um, so, and I'll give you an example. 20 years ago, this is about 20, 21 years ago, um, a couple walked into my office because they wanted a divorce. Now, uh, they, at, when we met, after, when, when we were done, I said, hey, I need your permission to tell this story. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, because I'm going to be telling the story for the rest of my life, so I need you to be okay with that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's cool if it'll help people. I don't know if it'll help, but it's hilarious. And so anyway, <clears throat> but so they had been married about six months and, uh, and they came in, they're like, it's over, we're done. You know, they hated each other and they, they, they have a whole list of reasons. The, the reality is they just couldn't get along. And so, and they, they said to illustrate, he tells me a story that had happened about three days before. And um, he tells me the story that they are sitting on their back porch on a Saturday morning, reading the newspaper. This is how you know, this is a pretty far back. They're reading the newspaper and this fly keeps buzzing around them. And the fly lands on the arm of her chair. So he rolls up the newspaper to kill the fly. Now, if I can pause for a minute. There is a certain strategy that works if you're gonna kill a fly. The thing that you have to know about flies is that when flies are gonna move, they lift off and then they go back a little bit before they take off. So you always have to come from the rears if you're going to take out a fly because they cannot go anywhere without going back, which is why you have to come, you have to attack from that angle. What I like to do, and this is just an advanced strategy, I like to hit them with some Windex so that they're a little disoriented, and then I hit them with the death blow. So anyway, and that's, that has nothing to do with the message. That's just free, all right? You just take that and be blessed. So anyway... So the guy rolls up the newspaper. She sees the fly and just shoes it away. And apparently that's the one thing you don't do with that dude because he lost his mind. And he's like, don't you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to kill the fly. Why would you do that? Why, are you tr why do you kill all of my dreams? And it's like, oh, that escalated quickly. From killing the fly to now you are the killer of my dreams. And I'm just like, mm-hmm, what else happened? I'm like, this is better than TV. This is, they're like living la vida loca over here. And uh, so anyway, uh, which was before that song came out, but anyway, <coughs> so, and, and, and I say, okay, um, can, I, can I repeat back to you what you just told me? Because sometimes I feel like it helps if you just hear it from someone else, what you have just spoken. You're going to get divorced over a fly. Doesn't that bug you? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know what? You guys just went up a notch. <laughs> this just tells me that when it comes to humor, you guys have a refined palate. So... Yes. Okay. So anyway, <clears throat> so, and they laughed and then, and listen, by the way, all these years later, they're doing great. 
and they hired pest control, and that's what helped it. So, <laughs> anyway, the problem is, this is a lot of times, listen, so many couples, they just don't know which battles to fight. You will be so much happier if you just let the dumb stuff go. And listen, and we all know, we, we all know people like this, that they have family members that they haven't spoken to in years, and they don't remember what the original fight was about. Like, do you understand how crazy that is? That it's like, oh man, you don't talk to them? Oh no, they're the worst. What happened? I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe that's an important thing. You know? Okay. So, uh, but listen, if you want relationships to change, there are things that need to change internally by way of wisdom to where we know what's worth fighting about and what is just just doesn't matter. And by the way, that does, when I say you got to let stuff go, it doesn't mean that you never answer someone if they say something to you or you let yourself be walked all over. No, and we've talked about this many times. People can't talk to you however they want. Some people need to be taught how to be respectful. But you've got to let the dumb stuff go because sometimes it's not worth the energy to explain crazy things to insane people. You just got to like you just got to realize like, "Oh, you're nuts." I'm out. You know what I mean? You just got to realize that. And, um, and you got to be wise enough. Here's the thing. Sometimes there's really good people who are going through a tough time and they just ended up emotionally vomiting on the first person that they saw. And sometimes that's us. And then there's sometimes there's people that are just totally toxic. And the way that you know the difference between the two, even if they say the same thing, is that um, the person who's like, hey, they're really good, they're just going through a tough time, that, that what they said is the exception rather than the rule. And that's how you know. And there's always two questions I like to ask when, when someone's argumentative. And, uh, <clears throat> but the first is this. Well, no, they, you know, and some people come up and they're like all you know, hot and excited and whatever. And I just say, hey, is anything that I'm going to say to you going to change your mind? No, because I'm right. Like, okay, then I, why are we even having this conversation? Like, if you just dislike me, that's fine, but I don't even need to be here. You can dislike me by yourself. And that's actually my preference. And so, um, and then the second question that I ask, and I think this is the more important one, is how is that working out for you? They don't like that one. Like, you know, you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it this way. Okay, how's that working out for you? Terrible. You know, like, why do I want to subscribe to that? If you're the poster child for what you're doing, I'm out. Like, I'm not... <clears throat> but the, the thing, argumentative people are generally miserable and unhappy. And this is why whenever I say, you know, how is that worldview, teaching, idea, philosophy working out? Um, they usually get upset because we've called their bluff. Because they aren't happy and the only thing that brings them any joy is finding people that are as miserable as they are. And I'm just not signing up for that. So if the goal, if we have to understand the goal of conflict. And the second thing is we've got to get to the heart of the matter. Look at what happens at the end. Um, when Matthew looks on at everything that Jesus is doing, he says, he, he, he says something so powerful. Look at verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, that is that they were, the, and from verse 14, they were plotting against him. He withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench 
till he sends justice, sends forth justice to victory, and in his name, Gentiles will trust. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to share with you when it comes to engaging conflict, and that is don't give up on people. There's one final thing that's so subtle, sometimes we can just read over it and miss it, but it's huge when it comes to conflict. I want you, Matthew looks on at everything that Jesus is doing in this area of Galilee, and he says, this is exactly what the prophets were talking about. And he quotes from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, that was talking about the Messiah, that the Messiah is not going to be shouting his own name from the rooftops until the right time, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 21. But then he gives this description that we can miss if we aren't careful. And he says this in verse 20. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Now, let me explain that. Um, a reed was, um, in, in that culture, was used for many purposes. But one of the purposes, shepherds would take a reed and they would poke holes into it and they would turn it into a flute type of musical instrument. And they would use it to play this soft music to calm sheep down when they were fearful or agitated or, or something else. And, but if, a, if one of those reeds was bruised or bent, um, it would serve no purpose and it would just get thrown out. In the same way, when a lamp was burned down to the very end of its wick, it would just start smoking and smoldering without producing any light, which is what the whole point of having a lamp is. But it was useless. So just like the bruised reed, the smoking flax would get thrown out as well. And here's what that means. And this is what Matthew was looking on at Jesus and saying, this is exactly what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. The, the people that the world would normally give up on, he doesn't give up on. He transforms them into something wonderful. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians, he picks up on this idea. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. In the book of Acts, which is what happened in the early, like what happened after the resurrection of Jesus in the early church, if you read the book of Acts, it'll tell you everything that happened um, for the first couple of decades of the early church. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Greece and he goes to Athens and he goes to this place that's called the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the place where the philosophers would debate new ideas. So he shows up, he sees an altar to all the gods. And then he sees one to the unknown God. And he says, hey, this unknown God is the one I want to preach to you. And he preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. And the people, a couple people believe, but most of them are like, yeah, whatever. And then he leaves and he goes, the next place he goes to is Corinth in Acts 18. And he just goes into the synagogue and just simply preaches the gospel. And the entire city is transformed by the gospel. Later on, a few years later, Paul writes a letter um, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, which we uh, studied last year, if you're interested, and we spent about six months. But here's what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. There is something that God seems to enjoy, and that is taking the cultural norm and flipping it, and never choosing the person that you would expect. And that is, happens from the very beginning. Instead of choosing Cain, who is the older brother, God chooses Abel, the younger brother. 
God chooses Isaac, the younger, not Ishmael, the older. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. He chooses Judah, not Reuben. He chooses David, not his seven older brothers. And the reality that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians in those verses that we read is that God's plan has been to do that from the very beginning so that everyone would know that he's the one that's doing the work. Now, there's a danger in reading that passage and not really thinking about it. And that it's that we start to think that it's a great thing to be an idiot. See, God chooses dumb people. So, man, God is more glorified the dumber we are. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, think of where you were when you were called. But the whole point is, is that you may have started there, but that's not where God's going to leave you. God wants to transform your life so that when you do do something great for him, people are going to realize, hey, remember where that guy started? That's a work of God transforming his life. <clears throat> Some of you know my story, and I, I've shared this in the past, um, that it took me five years to graduate high school. Um, as I like to say, uh, being a senior was the best two years of my life. And uh, I failed all four years of English in high school and had to go to summer school every year uh, to take English a second time. And, um, and that's why when I met my wife, my wife was on a full scholarship at FAU and I had just finished my, my fifth year of high school. So I just graduated, and she had just finished her first semester of college. And uh, it was at this party. Some of you know the story. And I was playing guitar, and the crowd was forming. And then she walked away because she doesn't like smug people. And, um, and so then I saw her walk away, and I put the guitar down. I sat down next to her and introduced myself. I didn't know. She was a fan of my band, and I didn't know that. Um, but, and she certainly wasn't going to tell me. And, um, and she just was telling me about, I was asking her questions. She's just finished her first semester of college and she loved school. And she's like, well, what about you? And I was like, school, I love it so much. And I love school. And, um, and I'm like, I go to school more than anyone I know. I go to school during the year, over the summer, sometimes even at night. And, um, and so, which my kids, my kids say, you know, your whole, your whole relationship with our mom was a lie. It's all built on a lie. And because uh, you lied to her because you really thought she was really pretty. And I'm like, well, um, uh, it wasn't a lie. It was a prophecy because I peaked in college. I mean, I graduated with just under a 4.0 GPA when I got my theology degree. And, um, and I'm almost halfway through a master's degree in theology. And uh, thank you, whoever did that. Um, <clears throat> well, I appreciate that. I, I would encourage you to clap when I'm done because I could, you know, drop out and be a loser. But um, which I'm not going to, but... Anyway, and so anyway, when, and then when I'm done, um, I will be the master pastor. And that's really the point. That's why I want to get a master's degree so that I'm not just a pastor, but I'm master pastor. And if I get a PhD, I'll be Dr. Master Pastor Esquire. Anyway, so, um, so now, so I did terrible uh, in school. And once again, and it created problems, you know, uh, is even when I was writing papers and stuff. So I remember about 15 years ago, I was going to write my first book and I just felt so called to do it. And um, it was a mess. And I remember um, talking to a publisher and they're like, Bob, we really like you. Um, we love the concept. We love Calvary. We love the work that you do with pastors. But um, here's what we're going to encourage you to do. We're going to encourage you to read these three books and then present something to us again. All three books were on the subject of how to write. I read a book and, uh, because I was a grammatical disaster. I, I had to read a book um, on grammar because apparently I had not mastered the English language. And uh, one of the books I read was called, I still have it, it's called The Glamour of Grammar. If there's, I hate nothing more 
than grammatical puns. Um, and so, and the whole book, I had to read this entire book because I, I did feel called to write. I just wasn't any good at it. And so I, I, the glamour of grammar has a chapter dedicated to the proper use of a semicolon. It, by the way, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, let me just encourage you, pick up a copy of the glamour of grammar <laughs> and you'll be out before, you know, they talk about a question mark, you know, and, uh, but they had a whole chapter on the proper use of a semicolon. I'd never used a semicolon in my life. In high school, I thought a semicolon was just a comma that wouldn't commit to its true calling. Um, now, fast forward, <coughs> and I, I've written seven books. And that little book begin that we give out when people come to know Jesus is in its sixth printing. Um, we tried to buy more uh, at the church. And they're like, yeah, we're out of stock for a couple months because we sold out again. And, um, and it's just, and I get messages from people all over the world that come to know Jesus and someone who loves them gives them a copy of Begin. And they're just like, hey, thank you so much. I connected with your story and I, I, I learned so much. I know what steps to take in my walk with God. And, um, and, and, here's, and here's the point. Just because you were foolish when God called you doesn't mean that's the place where God wants to keep you. God wants to transform you and do something great in your life so that when people look on, they say, oh, wow, look what God did with them. I believe God could do that with me. That's why, listen, the Apostle Paul was the most educated out of any of the other apostles. He was a voracious reader. He understood culture, and he, was the best te- he had the best teachers. He was so zealous for the Old Testament law that he persecuted and imprisoned Christians until he had an experience with Jesus that changed his life, and, and he became exactly the thing that he was talking about. The guy who was most likely not to convert to Christianity became the spokesperson for Christianity. Because what the gospel does is that it flips the script. Because God calls unlikely people to do amazing things. And he challenges us to become more that we are so that we can serve him to a greater capacity. And when it happens, God is glorified in our lives. People can look on and say, if God could do it with them, he could do it with anybody. Because all of us are bruised reeds. All of us are a smoking flax. And he comes into our lives. And you know what he does? He makes us strong in his power. In a light that shines in his brightness. And listen, that should comfort us. Because if you're here and your marriage is a bruised reed right now, there's hope that it won't always be that way. If we'll embrace him and trust him and walk with him. And maybe it's that way with your career or with your kids or with your future. It's a smoking flax. The future's a bit smoky. Then embrace him. And the smoke will begin to clear and he's going to give you light and vision for the future. But here's one thing he won't do is give up on you. Because he's with you. And he's never going to leave you. And he's never going to forsake you. Because he loves you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that promise that you're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. You're with us and you want to transform us. God, we're a bunch of bruised reeds. We're a bunch of smoking flaxes. And our prayer is that you would take whatever we are and transform us so that we can do greater things for you and that you might be glorified and that this world would be transformed. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. 
And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.